In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. In 2 Samuel 6, today's Old Testament lesson, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, before we go through this rich narrative, some comments on the Ark, uh, its meaning, and its typological significance. Now, if you've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, then you have a pretty good idea of what uh, the Ark would have looked like. Moreover, if you can manage to find uh, the warehouse in which it is currently being stored, you could just go and find and take a look at it for yourself. That's the end of the movie if you haven't seen it. Some of you got that good. The others, it's not actually in a warehouse. At Sinai, God had commanded uh, Moses to have the ark built, and he gave him very specific instructions. Uh, The ark was constructed from acacia wood, uh, which was overlaid inside and out with gold. Uh, It was two and a half cubits in length. For those of you who don't think in cubits, which is everybody, uh, that's 3.75 feet. Uh, And it was one and a half cubits in width and height. At the four corners of the ark were golden rings, which allowed for poles to be inserted in order that the ark could be carried by the Levites without it being touched. That's going to be important in just a minute. Remember that detail. Uh, The lid of the ark, which was made of solid gold, was called the mercy seat. And mounted atop the ark uh, were two golden cherubim facing one another. Inside the ark were the Ten Commandments. And we uh, find out later, uh, explicitly in the book of Hebrews, there was also a jar of manna and Aaron's staff, which had budded. The ark was the place of God's manifest presence on earth. There is in the Old Testament this close identity uh, between the ark of God and God himself. I mean, God would be addressed with reference to the ark and vice versa. We see this in what's called the song of the ark in Numbers Uh, chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. And it came to pass when the ark set forward, so they were taking it out in procession, that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, when it was coming back into the Holy of Holies, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. This is not to say, of course, uh, that the ark was God, but it was the place where God dwelt. It was, specifically, it was the place where God was enthroned, seated invisibly upon the cherubim with the ark as his footstool, which it is called explicitly in Holy Scripture. The ark of God is called his footstool. So as one rests his feet so did God rest, that is, dwell upon the ark. Rest, and this will help you so much in reading Scripture, rest in Scripture is synonymous with dwelling. So in the creation narrative, when it says that on the seventh day God rested, it means that God came to indwell the cosmic temple which he had just built. 
Not that God was tired and needed a break. Typologically, so in, what is the ark figure? What does it point to? The ark has been understood by the church to be prefiguring the Blessed Virgin Mary. As the Ark of the Covenant contained the words of God, that is the Ten Commandments, so did Mary carry the Word of God made flesh in her womb. As the Ark bore the manna, so did Mary bear the bread of life. Now this connection between the Ark and Mary is found in Holy Scripture. Uh, For example, in Revelation, the Apostles John's vision of the ark at the end of Revelation chapter 11 uh, immediately gives way in chapter 12 to a woman clothed with the sun, a pregnant woman whose son will rule the nations. Well, who do you think that is? However, and this is fascinating, uh, the typology is most clearly seen when juxtaposing first Sam, 2 Samuel 6, rather, today's Old Testament lesson, and Luke 1, Mary's journey into the Judean hill country is reminiscent of the ark's journey to Jerusalem. Moreover, there is this, at points in the narrative, striking similarity in language. So, a couple of examples, Luke 1, 39, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into the city of Judah. 2 Samuel 6, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God. Luke 1, 43, and, and whence is this to me, this is Elizabeth speaking, that the mother of my Lord should come to me. 2 Samuel 6, and David was afraid of that Lord, of the Lord that day and said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? And then one more example. Luke 1, and it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. That's John the Baptist, of whom we just read. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. 2 Samuel 6, and as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. So it's this pointing to to Mary, yes, but ultimately to Christ and the incarnation of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So David gathers 30,000 men, and he goes to get the Ark of the Covenant from Baal Judah, also known as Kiriath-Jerim which is about 12 and a half miles away from Jerusalem, we think. And this is such a large procession, 30,000, because this is a big deal, because the ark of God dwelling in Jerusalem meant effectively God dwelling in Jerusalem because it was the place of his dwelling. Also, there was a practical reason. The large numbers would have discouraged the Philistines from trying anything while they tried to move the ark. It would give safe transit. So they put the ark on a cart, and they begin to make their way to Jerusalem, and it's an incredible procession with rejoicing 
and music. But then the festivities are interrupted. And Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Why did God strike Uzzah dead? It looks from the text, I mean, we can't tell motives, but that Uzzah was trying to do something good. He was trying to steady the ark and keep it from hitting the ground. Well, first, I think at one, at one level, Uzzah's death is what happens when the finite, in a state of imperfection, comes into, into direct contact with the infinite. If no man can see God and live, then certainly no man can touch him. Uh, in the same way, this is analogous, but as all, don't ever try to make an analogy stand on all fours. In the same way that we, currently being at sea level, or maybe one or two feet above, could not survive. This is true. That's why people, when they climb Mount Everest, they have to go and live there for, they're gone for 60, 90 days. But if someone were to take us, it's very difficult to do this, take us in a helicopter and drop us on the summit of Everest right now, we wouldn't survive for more than a minute because we don't have the capacity. So in that same way, we have to be made ready. We have to be prepared. We have to be spiritually acclimatized. So at one level, I think that's what's going on. But, but more is going on because the, the Scriptures tell us that the Lord was angry. Why? Well, for one, the ark was never supposed to be on that cart. God didn't care that it was a new cart. What God had instructed the Israelites that the ark was to be carried with the poles of gilded acacia wood borne on the shoulders of the Levites. That's what God had commanded them to do. But they had set aside the commands of God, presumably, because it was more practical to transport the ark on a cart. It was seemingly a small sin. But that's how sin starts. Often seemingly small. But sin, when it is full grown, bringeth forth death. Whenever we set aside the Word of God and go our own way, even in a seemingly small matter, underneath that choice is pride, which is the sin of sins. It is, even again, in a seemingly small matter, it is hubris to think that we know better than God and that we can set aside His Word when we see it fitting or expedient to do so. Where were we when he laid the foundations of the earth? Who are we to amend his commandments? Also, it's, it's never a small thing to be in the presence of Almighty God. 
and how we conduct ourselves in, our, in his presence and how we handle holy things reveals our heart towards the Lord who is himself holy. I, I think we can, it's easy, this part of, which is difficult. I mean, David was mad at what happened. He didn't understand. He presses pause on the whole ark thing. Yeah, we're going to send it over to this foreign guy. Let him worry about it. But I think we have to grapple with it. The, the impulse, I think the modern impulse is to, well, this is just God being mean in the Old Testament, one of the instances of when God was mean. But then we're halfway to Marcionism, a heresy, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different gods. But Jesus Christ well, Malachi 3, I the, one, I, the Lord, do not change. And then Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can't write this off. I mean, in the New Testament church, the church at Corinth, Paul writes them, they are mishandling. They are abusing the holy, the holy Eucharist. And Paul writes them. Because they have abused the Holy Eucharist, he says, that's why some of you are sick and that's why some of you have died. So again, David gets, he gets cold feet. He's like, ah, I don't want to mess with this. In light of God's judgment and in light of his holiness. So he takes the house, he takes the ark to the house of Obed-Edom where it stays for a while. And then David gets word that the house of Obed-Edom has been blessed on account of the ark. The presence of the Lord means blessing. And so David picks the project back up and he resumes the procession again with much joy, this time transporting the ark in the right way and with all solemnity, stopping every six paces and offering sacrifice. Stopping every six paces and offering sacrifice. Shedding the blood of an ox and a fatling. They're able to walk in the presence of God with joy because of the sacrifice offered. How is it that we can know this awesome and great God. How, it, how can we know the one who made all things, the one who uh, is sovereign over all things? How can we come into contact with the divine and not be destroyed by the blood of Jesus? This points, David's sacrifice every six steps points to Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, God, the word becomes flesh. He takes, he takes a complete human nature unto himself and by his life and his death and his resurrection, he transforms humanity so that we can come into contact with God and be brought right into the middle of the Trinitarian life.
It's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we have access to this awesome, incredible, at times scary and frightening God. I had the opportunity, oh, this is years ago now, because you guys know I'm getting so old. Got a, got a big birthday coming up. Um, I had the opportunity to go with my mother to, to Zambia, and we went, and we're all the way over there, so we're like, we're going to go see Victoria Falls before we go home. And really kind of funny, I won't get into the whole story, but it, the park itself is so understated. It's not like in the States, we're going to build gift shops and all this kind of stuff, and it's a chain link fence, a little sign that says Victoria Falls, and you walk through the woods and you see this clearing. And being out on this, not a rope bridge, but not an Indiana Jones bridge, but not, not that far off from that either. Um, not made of steel. <laughs> I remember seeing the falls and beautiful and awe-inspiring. It's also kind of frightening just in the face of that much power. It's like, I wouldn't go mess with that. I'm not going to go jump off it. I'm not going to go stand underneath it. And I understood that day a little bit better what it meant to fear the Lord. The house of Obed-Edom, I don't know exactly where it is. I I couldn't get a solid answer on this, but it's somewhere between Kiriath-Jerim, where the ark was, and Jerusalem the two being about 12 and a half miles apart. So, but even if it was only a mile or two away, this was quite a long procession, quite a long worship service if you're stopping every six paces and offering sacrifice. As the ark comes into Jerusalem, uh, David, wearing a linen ephod, a priestly garment, is leaping and dancing before the Lord. And Michael, who is the daughter of Saul uh, and David's wife, sees him doing this and despises him. She sees his actions as beneath the dignity of his station. I think she was jealous because David had become an accomplished Everything that her father Saul was supposed to be. Everything that his, her father Saul was supposed to accomplish. And she says to him, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, before the eyes of his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And I love David's response. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. It was before the Lord. It wasn't for you, Michael. It wasn't for the servants. It was for the Lord. Here, David prefigures Christ. Here, David is perhaps the most like Christ. 
For Christ was ever in perfect communion with the Father, ever in accordance with His will, ever adoring Him. The zeal that David has to honor and adore Almighty God The church, when gathered together for the Holy Eucharist, is giving. She's giving first before she's getting. She is offering a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And as David's worship was before the Lord, so is our worship before the Lord. It's, it's for Him. This is something I'm so passionate about, that we're not here to be entertained. This is not religious entertainment. But we're here to minister before the Lord, to minister to the Lord, to offer our bodies. That is to offer the whole of who we are as living sacrifices in response to the mercy and grace and the love of God which has been shown to us in and through Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we get something out of that because it's why we exist. It's why we were made. We were made for God. To know Him, to see Him, to be united with Him. And of course there is joy. I've heard me say this before. Solemnity and ecstasy are not mutually exclusive. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. And this makes sense. Because true and lasting joy is found in God alone. So in 1 Samuel chapter 6, we're landing the plane, we see this solemnity and this ecstasy come together in perfect union. We see the holiness of God and the loving, joy-filled presence of God together. Brothers and sisters, May God fashion us into people who are aware of and zealous for the holiness of God. People who are humbly obedient in the light of the holiness of God. Never setting aside one jot or tittle of the perfect law of liberty, which is the law of Christ, written on our hearts by the Spirit of God, witnessed to in the Holy Scriptures. May we be people who adore God and worship Him in the beauty of holiness, knowing that when we approach God by the blood of Jesus in, hum in a spirit of humility and repentance and surrender and thanksgiving, and the list goes on and on, when we do that, God gives us the greatest gift Himself. He gives us His presence. So as we come today, in just a few moments, to handle and to taste something 
more precious than the Ark of the Covenant itself, the very body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us do so with fear and trembling and gratitude and awe and love and thanksgiving and joy. Amen.